Welcome to The Red Podcast, a place for bold, inspired, outrageously courageous, and just a tad bit naughty women leaders come together. I'm Elaine Kalila, and I'm the founder of the Priestess Presence Temple, a sisterhood of over 80,000 women. For the past 25 years, I've had the great pleasure and privilege of supporting, inspiring, catalyzing, and initiating women to remember who they are. The Red Podcast is a place where you can come to lean into your edges, listen for that which yearns to be expressed more fully through you, and to say yes to the places that probably scare you. More importantly, I'm going to be talking with some amazing women who are spiritual and grounded, and we're going to be chatting about what it takes for each one of us to step into the legacy of our purpose and fully bring it to the world that we're here to co-create. Your presence is a gift, so I say bring it. We're here to listen to your red, your leading edge, that place of evolution within you. Hope you enjoy the conversations. So hello there, my beautiful ones of the Red Podcast land. I'm so, so excited to get to be here with you today. And I have to tell you, you've been waiting to bring this guest onto the podcast for quite a while now. And we finally converged. And I am sitting here with the delightful Sophie Strand. Hello, my love. Hello. And I'm so happy that we are finally getting to to weave together on this day. Oh my gosh. Well, so I have to tell you all, I'm recording this from the Sacred Isle of Avalon. And I just got Sophie on the line with me and realized that we are fellow redheads and that we're here to talk about the Magdalene and a book that Sophie is releasing on August 15th. It's called The Madonna Secret that I've had the very high privilege of getting a sneak peek at and getting to read before it even comes out to be published. And number one, I want to just say Thank you for writing this story. The Madonna Secret is an incredible book, and I'm not going to give a lot of it away in this moment because I'm going to be asking Sophie to really talk to us about why you wrote this book, how it started to come into being, and why is the story of the Magdalene and Yeshua so important right now for us to be revisiting with. So wherever you want to begin in this extraordinary piece of work that you've been putting together, darling, I'd love to just have you start. Yeah, tell us the story. <laughs> Thank you. I'm always liable to go off on a two-hour rant. Because oh, well, that's like, great. Don't worry. I will fill in the threads. <laughs> my whole life, I feel like my whole life was orchestrating me to, to put me into the position where I would have to write this book. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of people, a lot of writers oftentimes say this, which is, I wanted to read a book that hadn't been written, and I was so desirous to read it that I ultimately got impatient and decided I would have to write it. (laughs) Um, And that story that I was longing for for a long time was, you know, the story of the Magdalene as a spiritual seeker, as an intellectual, as an equal to Jesus, as we see in the Gospel of Philip and the Nag Hammadi texts and all of the Apocrypha and the other, you know, the excised Christianities, the female Christianities that were very prevalent during the first 200 years of the movement, but then were destroyed by um, the Christianity that was co-opted by empire. And so I was really, really interested in resurrecting not just the Magdalene's voice, but the voices of the grandmothers, the prostitutes, you know, the sisters, the midwives, the slaves, that I was very inspired by Anita Diamant's, um, I believe that's how you say her name, her book, The Red Tent, which is about Dina, 
and about the Old Testament and resurrecting the forgotten voices of the women. And I said, Has, can that be done for Second Temple period Palestine? Can that be done for the women around Yeshua, who were we know from the Gospel of Luke, financially supporting the ministry? Right. Probably taking care of all of the practicalities who were there, who were engaging in the debate, <laughs> who were the equals of the men, all traveling on foot, but then get erased in the first 200 years of, of, of the movement. So can we go back and resurrect those voices? So it wasn't even just, the Magdalene for me was a portal to a forest of female voices. Yes. And I thought, can, can I bring these women back to life? Can I honor them? And so that was the impulse. It was the desire. And to be a little spooky about it, when I was 16, I went to visit extended family in Israel. And on that trip, I became de deathly ill with a condition that had changed my life. It was genetic, but it didn't kick in until I was 16. And so I, I really, you know, I was healthy. And then I went to Israel and I came back and I was a different person. And there was something about that time spent in Pine in this in this area where those people would have lived and walked and breathed and died and suffered and made love something about getting sick in that place having my whole life changed stitched me spiritually ideologically into the soil and I think that it was working through me from then on that I was always mm -hmm. going to have to go back to that land inside my writing oh Sophie Wow, you've said so much in just those few words. So thank you for your eloquence and weaving all that together. And this reclamation of the voices of these women, of this, uh, this ministry, as you said, of really, um, of really finding their voices, which have been so erased, right? In the modern day Christianity that we know. One of the things when I was reading your book, and I shared this with you before we got on air, I was reading, and it's right up the front in the prologue in the very beginning of the book where, you know, the seeker is looking for the Magdalene. He's looking for the voice of this story and he finally finds her and he's sitting with this very imposing woman, you know, who, who is like holding this extraordinary energetic space in this room. And, and he's a little bit of a clamped. He doesn't know quite what to do with himself. And he comes to her and, and he, and he says, I, I want to hear from the one who is the disciple. And she retorts to him, I was not his disciple. And you had me <laughs> at that moment. And I was like, oh, I want to read this story. Can you speak to us a little bit about what you've come to know in your blood, breath and bones about Mary Magdalene and Yeshua in this excavation, this rerouting, this recohering to the root system of the of the lands and the people and the spaces. I'm so curious how they began to live in you, what you've begun, began to find out about them. Oh, I mean, <laughs> when, when you, I think there are two sides. One is as a writer, when you write characters that you love, they become part of you and you love them right. so much. You don't want to kill them. You don't want to leave them. But on the other side, I think when you pivot towards the Magdalene, there's something that happens. It's like a virus. You get, yes. <laughs> you feel this love in you, this fire, this passion, this desire that I think a lot of people have this almost obsessive um, energy again when they meet her, um, meet her in her history and in her erasure, her elision. Um, and so for me, I think I chose fiction because I don't think that 
any one of us can claim to have the concrete answer. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's yeah. so much, there's so many, it's kaleidoscopic. There's so many ways in, there's so much we don't know. And for me, fiction was a way of breathing life into it without saying I'm an expert. I'm a <laughs> lover. I'm not an expert. And I wanted to infuse these beings who I knew were servants of love, of love that's bigger than the human, that is like the song of songs love, love that spills into spikenard and pomegranates and jasmine and foxes and this old humanistic sensuality of Judaism that gets erased by Christianity. I knew that they were involved in this kind of erotic storytelling ecological tradition that we've forgotten and that Jesus wasn't this ascetical, you know, uh, strict man. You know, I think one of the interesting things for me is I really love historical fiction and historical research. And as I was really going deep into the anthropology, the primary text, the political situations, I thought, you know, to be a person who could have convinced unlanded Galilean peasantry who've experienced trauma and violence and like oppression beyond anything we can imagine, you know, they can hardly feed their families. They've had their land stolen from them. They have the Romans coming and killing them, raping them. The land that they believe belongs to God has been stolen by the Romans. Um, They don't even get to visit the temple or or do the things that purify them or make them feel like they're spiritually healthy. Mm. Um, How would you convince those people to be peaceful and heal and share food with people who they believe to be completely antithetical to them? You wouldn't be a passive kind person. You would have to be an incredibly angry, wild, um, you know, intense person. You'd have to be a kind of persona that I've never seen Jesus represented as, at Mm -hmm. least in iconography or in classical Christian like movies. You would have to be kind of a real character. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in trying to bring back to life a Yeshua and Miriam who had faults who were complex, who were traumatized, who were dealing with with all of the paradoxes of living within a hierarchical culture with with a spirituality that was incredibly rich and lush, but also sexist, and also dealing with empire that was trying to eradicate them. Like, what mistakes do people make? What extremes are they forced to? So I wanted to see them as full human beings who are capable of more love than we've let them be capable of. You know, I wanted to give Jesus back his body, his sensuality, the kind of somatic intelligence he must have had to be able to command the attention of so many people. We forget that to be that kind of a hands-on healer, that kind of a storyteller involves a very powerful body. And so that's something that was really important to me. Wow. Wow. Juicy, juicy, juicy. And I think that this has been the biggest thing in my own journey with the Magdalene, with Miriam, with Yeshua, with this whole reclamation of what I consider also to be, you know, the pre-Christian or the more, the more sensual, erotic, mystic Christianity that existed before it was really taken and turned into something that doesn't resemble what it grew from at all. And one of the things that I was so struck by in everything you've written and also in what the way you're speaking and also in all the work, all the other work that you've been doing, Sophie, really of what I've been reading is this connection into the body, into our humanity, into our rootedness to the earth, to this consciousness, the Gaia consciousness. 
and the shamanic traditions and the esoteric traditions of the storytelling that you're talking about is embodied within us. It comes from our viscera, right? It comes from our breath. And this idea that it is through our humanity that we awaken to the divinity. And this has been my deepest place of coming home to the teachings of it is through the nitty gritty, sweaty, smelly, <laughs> aching, crying, moaning, groaning, laughing, weeping humanity that we all are, that we awaken to love, that that's what love actually is. And that love is the thing that transforms all of these things that we go through as humans and and that of course they went through these they were in a human body whatever we may believe about where they came from they were human beings and I'm so so curious why now why is this story getting told now contextually you know when we really look at the world that we're living in it seems like every time I turn around, I'm seeing some reference to the Magdalene, to the Magdalenas, to the Miraforce, to the you name it. It's just everywhere I'm looking. And now we can say that's because as viewed, so appears. But <laughs> but truly, there's something happening. And I'm curious from your lensing, what is it that's so relevant? It's a great question, and it's one that I'm not sure I have a complete answer. Yeah, to, I can wonder. I can live in. Yeah, wonder with me because this is one you. I'm. I've been engaging with. I'm like so curious about it. So for me, I, I like to think of figures as being archetypes. They, they get mm -hmm. infused with a land energy. So it's like there's a mythic mycelium, like a fungal mm -hmm. system below ground then sometimes grabs the feet of an individual and infects them with this kind of <laughs> this underworld ecological consciousness. And so for mm. me, Miriam, Miriam the Magdalene, um, Migdalene, is infused with a rhizomatic intelligence that is also connected to the Black Madonna tradition, to the Lady of the Beast, to the Paleolithic bird goddesses, to Isis, to Inanna, and to Sybil, and to the warrior love goddesses. Um, and so for me and Aphrodite, um, Miriam is this direct portal into this older tradition, goddess tradition that was the lady of the beasts, the lady who, who represented the trees, the doves, the Asherah pillar. You know, when I think of the tower, I think of these older Canaanite, you know, early Northern Judaic um, uh, figures of, of the Asherah um, temple and uh, mm -hmm. pillar and tree which is that the goddess is not just a human, she's a tree. <laughs> she, she's, a, she's a column of beards, the underworld with the above world, like a nana. And so for me, I think the Magdalene is a portal to remembering that the divine is, has, is not just a man. It's not just a human being. It's a portal into the animate everything, into the teeming, sticking, bringing, pricking, dying, loving biodiversity of all the other beings. And so for me, the Magdalene is an invitation to a kind of animistic sensibility that we are all longing for right now. Um, and I think if you look at her and who she's always associated with and what she's associated with, she's always organic. She's associated <laughs> with roses, with doves, <laughs> with moonlight with spikenard with sensuality with smells and she's funky she's bodily and so she's i think she's arriving now because she wants us to come back into our bodies and back into our web of relationships that includes kin that are not just human that's ah. my own 
Very. Oh, no, you've got me. You've got me. You know, one of the um, one of the sacred practices, and my listeners will know this, that that I am engaged in is as a scent priestess, which is working with the sacred holy oils. Um, which is what I'm doing here in Avalon right now. I've been on a retreat um, where we've all been anointing. Ah, beautiful. Where we've been full body anointing. And I've been watching, witnessing what happens when we lay on the hands of light to awaken the body with the plant medicines of these essential oils that we've been using, you know, recorded history for the last 7,000 years and probably much longer than that, which are this 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 root system that you're talking about into our into our physicality and into our plant body that's also part of our human body, right? And that exactly. and that Miriam is this sensualist, and that this yeah. sensuality of spirituality, this erotic nature of spirituality, is something that has been so scared out of us, so tortured out of us, so traumatized out of us. And yet it prevails. And this is the piece that I'm so curious about because as you're speaking, it's like there's this, there's this gnosis, right? This knowing in us. And particularly in those of us who move in feminine bodies or feminine identified bodies who are moving with the feminine. And there's a reclamation of that sensuality as a path into deep connection to the spirit of who we are. Exactly. I'm so curious about how she has affected your life. How has she affected you? Because <laughs> yeah. um, you're a Magdalena. You're a Magdalena. There's no reason you'd be writing this book unless you were a Magdalena, right? <laughs> she came in and she, I think, I think a lot about possession. Um, and I think about possession positive way and how in so many indigenous traditions and and, and many non-European traditions, Mm. you have to decide, you have to let something use you. And it can be, I can never say, what do you want to become a mouth for? Like, do you want a plant? Do you want a flower? Do you want a being? And I think that there was a point in my life where I was very sick and very Mm. scared. And Mm. I think I stepped out of the way. I need someone to use me. And she was very generous and she arrived. Um, And so I'm kind of like, you know, there, I think there's symbiotic, there's symbiotic plants that fuse with fungi and then they receive all their nourishment from the fungi and they're fused. They're like one body. They become, they share a body. And so for me, the Magdalene has kept me alive through health crises that I shouldn't have made it through. That my desire to understand her, to write about her, to hold her has kept me going she has been my life raft so yeah I mean how has she changed me she's saved me she's been my lighthouse she you know the lighthouse is as a reference to Alexandria and to Isis with whom she mm-hmm. shares so much um mm-hmm. she's been my lighthouse oh oh I so hear you Sophie you know and I think that this is something that I hear a lot of women talking about who have come onto this path through some kind of healing crisis or some death and rebirth experience. And obviously that is life, right? And one of the things for me that that the Magdalene consciousness has guided me in is this understanding and reclamation of the natural cycle of life, death and rebirth, the resurrection 
that happens through life. And, you know, when you're speaking, you know, I came into connection with the Magdalene so strongly nine years ago through a miscarriage. It was through losing a baby. And, oh, and nine years later, I'm still, I'm still in the gratitude. Like you said, she came into my consciousness and she was the one who saved me. She was the one who, and I had the same idea of saying to her, how can you use me? You have to give me a purpose now. I have to have something to bring because the loss of that, 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 that baby was something that, that ripped me apart. And so it's fascinating me to hear, to, for me to hear your journey around how you 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 can say your thanks and your gratitude to her for fusing into your root system, like for becoming your root. And there's something yeah, about me back in to a sense of belonging. I mean, I think right. when, when female identifying people have felt exiled from from mm. their full sexual maturity, yeah. you know, from from their width and their power and their voluptuousness we're, we're told we're not allowed that the full spectrum of our sensual power and mm. i think that she invites us back into that dynamism and so she yeah i mean she has allowed me to body mm. to, like body is verb um it's interesting that, that it was a miscarriage that hired your you know first relationship with her because you know she she really came into my life when I had an abortion and then again when I had a miscarriage. And oh, a miscarriage okay. features really prominently. So wow. it's like the pivotal yeah. event. Exactly. And I think there's something we were talking about that this week with all the women on this retreat about how how miscarriage is something that's so ignored as a rite of passage. It's like so many women have this experience and are completely unheld through it as, and, and as if it's not meant to mean anything, as if, as if somehow you're just meant to get on with life and you're not meant to really acknowledge it or even talk about it. And yet I, I as you just named that for, for yourself and also for your writing, it's like, it, it, it's a profound experience with the dark mother, with that dark, dark energy of the mother that takes life away as well as creates life. You have the experience of, I think that's why Miriam is such a powerful figure, which is yeah. she is, she's the mother and she's the death crown. Right. She's there at the tomb and she's there at the birth. And I think when we have a miscarriage, we have the experience that's so intensely conflated of creating life and then becoming a tomb. And right. they're just, they happen in the same container and it's, it's big alchemy. It's so much bigger than our simplistic dualisms and that's really the mystery we're being invited into with her i think oh just you naming that that we are the womb and we become the tomb that we literally embody that and when you really think about the the stories that we were handed in the canonical gospels around mary and around where she where she was where she was she was at all of these incredibly important rites of passage she was the priestess, right she's yeah. the only one that's named right and that she was the the priestess that was initiating and guiding and anointing and doing all the pieces of the crucifixion of her beloved of her of her other of her but sacred union yeah i mean the thing that i always say is we're living in a moment of radical extinction where even if we change our behavior, a lot of death is going to happen. 
And yeah. she teaches us to be deaf doers. That's how, how do we how do we anoint the earth and ourselves as we confront radical change and loss? Right. You know, as you say that this is the piece that I think I'm sitting with when I'm asked, you know, why now? Why is she showing up? And that's it. I feel like there's been, I have this feeling of the repetition of history. And I don't know if you sit with me in this, but <laughs> like this, this place, right, where we have seen the rise and fall of so many civilizations, so many expressions of humanity. And in those times, has always been those who were the Magdalens, whether it was Miriam or the other goddesses or priestesses, whoever we want to call, these watchtower women, these women who came to and have come to now be the death doulas, the death midwives, the ones who can... (laughs) We're here holding space and being present to the death that's happening and holding the love inside of that death and trusting even in the moments of the darkest times, that, that there is some other rebirth of something that will happen because life is constantly moving and evolving in ways that we cannot even really contemplate. We can't even get our heads around it because it's so much bigger than us. <laughs> yeah, and I just think that that is the hardest and mm. most important thing that, you know, Miriam witnesses. She does not look away. And in this culture, we look away so much from pain, from ability, from things we can't understand. And she's so good at telling us that we have to just witness. We have to watch. We cannot turn away. Right. And that, to me, is the heart of the Tower of Strength. You know, when we think about all the ways and we can translate the Magdalene and the Magdalene being not her name, but the title of the one who takes the place of the lighthouse or the watchtower or the tower of strength, however you want to translate it. For me, within that is the strength to be able to stay present, to be that witness. I mean, when she was at the cross, she did not turn away. She stayed. And what I always think about that moment, Sophie, because for me, what would it take for me to stay? in the side of that like what I know and to done in order to stay it would also have been dangerous to her own life right I mean I think about all of the complexity baked in um right Right. um, exactly like seeing yeah and and I think that's one of been one of the most transformative transformational moments for me has been contemplating her there and, and really, what, what does that teach us about what she's carrying as a teaching? You know, because there's so much that she doesn't say because we don't have the words written anywhere. But we have these, these experiences that she went through that in, you know, the Gospels are just one or two sentences, not even. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I oftentimes think about Thunder Perfect Mind, which is yeah. that text yeah. by some kind of female and is concluded in Christian um, yeah. apocrypha and, and some people suggest that it is you know a Magdalene text yeah, and it's still paradoxes these koans like I am the mother I am the barren one I am contaminated I am pure yes. and for me I think about her as being the person who's absolutely filled with love and absolutely the angriest person you've ever met <laughs> well, like I, I can't imagine what right. kind of anger she must have felt to see her, who I, I believe he was her partner. 
Yeah. I, to see her partner, her spiritual equal, killed early in life, nipped in the bud. I oftentimes say to people, like, how sad is it to think that that was the best he could have done? <laughs> like, what more could they both have offered if they had lived to 70, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I do. I just wonder. I do. I really wonder about that, too. And I wonder about when you talk about that story of 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 their of their love right and and whatever you believe out there whether you believe that they were partners or not partners i think what we can all agree on is is that there's a reclamation of this sense of equality that they were partnered just as we could look at makeda and solomon or isis and osiris or you know pab and sambaba and yeshi sogal like these divine couples that were partnered as equals within equalization for me comes a new story when we really look at how would it change how we see ourselves as women as women those who identify as women those who move in female bodies how does it change our story if Mary Magdalene is Yeshua's equal I know I mean I think it requires more of men I think when men Uh don't when you don't want women to be powerful, they don't have to be that powerful. And I think that when men can step aside really powerful women and then try and meet them, they suddenly are telling better stories, better parables. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. My personal feeling is, and this is one of these completely fit. This is why I chose to write fiction because I'm not, I can't write a historical book making any claims. But my sense is that the Magdalene was some kind of catalyst for him. Yes. That there was a way in which his teaching was fermented and greatly amplified by dialoguing with her. I love that you said that. I have the complete same feeling. And I actually feel like, I actually feel like as I've studied and sat with her, contemplated, been in personal deep relationship in my own being with her, that she was his initiator. That she was his anointing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she was the one who catalyzed, as you said. She she was the one actually who had the sacred technology. She was the one who was trained. She was the one who actually knew how to transfigure in grace and knew how to do the transcension work and all of the work of bringing the ministry through. You know, I often hear, hear it in my own self. It's like he bought the word, but she actually embodied it. It's beautiful. I love that. Right. She's the living example of the word. It wasn't even that she spoke about it as much as she was it. You know? And I think that's that's what we've lost from the ministry was Mm -hmm. Jesus was mostly interested in sharing food and laying hands on people. Exactly. Doing rather than ideas of morality and ethics and and Mm -hmm. correct behavior. You really just like share food with anybody who shows up and heal anybody who needs to be healed. You know, it's that simple. And I really think that she took that message and she didn't tell stories. She just did it. Yeah, I think so too. And that's when people ask me about what does it mean to walk as a Magdalene? That's what it means. It means that every single day there's going to people come across my path who require some kind of contact healing, love, 
And the question is, am I available to offer it? Am I, am I open enough? Am I awake enough in the moment to recognize it as that moment where the Christed heart wants to come through and go, okay, how can I love now? What is love doing now? And to me, it's as simple and as extraordinarily difficult as that. Because, right, yeah. right, because I know for me, and I'm sure this is true for all of us who are called to anything to do with this way of love, that actually to walk as love is an incredibly challenging path as a human. <laughs> you know, really, really. What are you most excited about, about getting this story out there into the world, my love? What is most thrilling to you? You know, there's so many characters in the book that I love, like they are my siblings or my I children. Can tell. I can and tell. <laughs> there are two or three characters that I've held within a very small community of readers and editors and other mm. writers. Mm. And I want to see what happens when they walk away from me. <sighs> and one of them is Lazarus. And yes. Lazarus as a character is so so close to my heart. And mm-hmm. I think there's this beautiful magic that happens with books is that they do something. They're like children, you know, they, maybe you threw your DNA in there, but they're doing something else. And I think I'm sending out my children and I'm really curious to see how they talk and speak and dialogue with other people. Um, so that's mm-hmm. what I'm, 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 I'm excited for. Yeah. is just to let these, these beings that I've loved. And it's also terrifying. These people I've loved so much go. Yeah. I really get that. I really get that because it's such an intimate experience. I mean, I can tell through the reading of the book, how intimate you've been in this. And and you couldn't, I mean, I I don't know how many years did it take you to write this book, hon? Well, I think book writing is such a strange thing. It took me two years to write the first draft, which was a thousand and two hundred pages long. (gasps) And then, a year to rewrite, cut, basically rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, with have heavy revisions with having readers and editors and friends give a lot of feedback. And then so I cut about 400 pages. I know. More. Wow. Um, and, and really heavily revised. So three years to really bring it to completion. But then there were about five years of trying to get it sold, you know, <laughs> 27 rejections and, you know, writing another book, coming back to it, rewriting a couple of scenes. So it's a very strange meandering route. I think the whole time I just trusted that the whole process of writing the book felt very synchronous. It really felt like I had to do it. There was no other choice. And I knew that if it was supposed to be published and supposed to come out, the Magdalene would make it happen. And if it wasn't, she would let it not happen. So I just trusted that she was going to do what she needed I to really do. I really hear that. You know, and I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting um, process when you talk about the 27 rejections, right? And and what's that about? <laughs> and to me, there's some there's there's like a wisdom somehow in there of of the perseverance of you trusting the process of you keeping going and not just saying, oh, this well, this clearly wasn't a good idea. There's a moment, and I feel like we are in that moment, Sophie. I feel like it's primed. I feel like she's been rising and rising and rising, and now it's there's this kind of 
tipping point or apex point that we're at, you know, and I, I know that I've been in there too. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, you know, how long did it take you to, to make this Oracle deck? And I was like, well, what, number one, I never knew I was going to make an Oracle deck. And number two, it was nine nine years, nine, nine years ago, I had that miscarriage and nine years ago, it wasn't like I didn't know Miriam of Magdala before that, but I had been avoiding her. Let's be real. You know, I was, I was, I was a lapsed Christian. I was like, I am not going back down that road. And then she claimed me nine years ago. And it nine years ago, she began this path. So anyone who's creating anything out there, I just want to say this to you all, to all of us. It takes time. <laughs> you got to be willing to be really patient with the birthing process. And, and, and you said something earlier on about this death and rebirth process of life and that we have to be willing to let something die in us in order yeah. for something to be born. And I'm really curious if you were to name it, what, what have you had to let die, love? Oh my gosh. I mean, so much in my life had to die while I wrote this book. It was like an exercise. You know, I was in a long-term partnership and engagement and I had to let that partnership go. That once I had ridden Miriam and her fierceness, there is no way I could withstand the type of behavior and emotional abuse in that relationship. So I had to give up the shared life. I had to give up a shared life. I had a miscarriage. I gave up a child also in the midst of it. Oh um, with, with this partner who I knew couldn't be a father. It was, it was my body knew that it couldn't have yeah. that baby. With yeah. And so there was so much loss. And then, you know, I had, I was ill and I got a diagnosis that didn't have a cure. So I had to give up and let die this idea that there's an easy cure or there's a healing narrative. Um, I think there's so much composting and, I'm really hoping that I'm in the next cycle, but I also am humble enough to know that I have no idea (laughs) and I have to be ready for whatever dance step is next. Yeah. Oh, my love. It sounds like you've been on a really massive initiatory journey and that this... (laughs) Right. Well, but this is also the hallmark, I think, of those of us who choose to step into this work. I don't know anybody, you know, I'm thinking about all the women I've been hanging with this week and their stories and just how deeply initiated we we are and all of us are. And it's whether we choose to see it as such and to actually engage with it consciously, because what you've just named, I mean, when I look back at my life, I'm like, yep, I had to leave that marriage because that wasn't going to work. As soon as she came in full on, she was like, this is no, you know, she's a feisty broad. She's a feisty broad. You know, I always call her a bit of a bossy one. She's bossy. (laughs) You know, she's not a wall. She's not a wallflower. She is a fierce, tender love. And when you have to come into the integrity of fierce, tender love and look at your life and say, okay, that's not going to fly anymore. You know, so I think that there's a real truth there around yeah. what... She's a tower from the tarot. I mean, she says that, you know, the foundations are rotten. Bring it down. I always oh think of that. Oh my like, gosh. You're <laughs> right. I had never thought of that. The tower card. Oh, the watchtower card. She's the one who says, I'm sorry, you got to retrofit your life. Yeah. Because that is not working for you. That's so fascinating. 
But it's also interesting for me that we deem that we, you know, people who do tarot are scared of that card. It's because we're scared of that feminine, you know, embodiment and that power, that self-esteem. That's right. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Who are you there? Yeah, and there's something there in what you've just said about that energy of the tower, that energy of the destruction and creation. And when we see it in the dark goddess, we see it in Kali Ma, we see it in these these energies of the Sekhmet, these fierce goddesses who are are engaged in that journey of let's tear it apart and rebuild it. Let's tear it apart and rebuild it. And that that is, like you said, you don't know what the next dance step is going to be because we're always in that process. The world is in that process. The plants, trees, animals, everything is in that process of being, you know, consumed and renewed and dying and living and birthing. And it's going on in every moment. And she reminds us of that. Like it's, it's very humbling, as you said, <laughs> very humbling part. I, I want to just ask you, I know we need to stop for today. This I, I could chat with you, honestly, I could chat you with you for days <laughs> about all of this. Um, but one of the things that I want to ask you about is for yourself, what does it mean for you to walk as love? <laughs> How are you called to walk as love? Mm. I think... I have to realize, I think for a long time, I was really trapped within a very patriarchal narrative of what love was supposed to be. Yeah, It was about being a possession, being claimed by another person. Mm. And I think I'm trying to understand that love is an ecology, that everything I do is making love with the earth. Mm. And that, you know, when I put my foot on a patch of moss that's sending vibrations through hundreds of miles of mycelium that everything I do is profoundly um, amorous if I infuse (laughs) it with care and if I live in the world that way the world responds with love and that I don't have to feel impoverished if I don't have a partner or a marriage that I am wedded to mountains and to spikenard and to the Magdalene and to doves and eagles and woodchucks. And that <laughs> embodying love in my life is recognizing that there's never a poverty of love. It's just about opening our bodies and our eyes. Mm. Oh my goodness. I want us to all take that in for just a moment. But such a beautiful invitation for us to explore what love is beyond the constructs that we've been given, which is so impoverished and narrow. <laughs> because what I... I mean, they're often... Right? Coupled, coupled love is great. Like, there's no knocking that. But we also... Love is is wild and bigger than me. Well, and that's the thing is, I always, I've come to this conclusion and I remember a long time ago having this query and really have been in it for a long time. But I think that one of the things I've been sitting with is that we really don't know what love is. That as a culture, we've been completely, completely bamboozled when it comes to love. We, we, we have this word love, but we really don't 
understand what love is. And actually for me, the Magdalene is a ministry of that contemplation of love, the, 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 the willingness to go to the edges of all of the many, many faces of love. Mm-hmm. And love is never one thing. It is always, always being discerned in the moment as to what love mm-hmm. actually is. Because sometimes love doesn't look like what you think love looks like. <laughs> that's exa- that's my experience. So Yeah, and it goes back to that humility, which right. just do I, can I ask the question? Can I, uh, can I re, can I update how I see this right now? Can I be curious? Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, I just want to thank you, Sophie, for being here. I mean, I have literally loved this conversation to pieces. And I'm so, I feel like I just found another sister on the path. And now I I want to come to Glastonbury and I'm just hoping that I can make the pilgrimage and meet you there. I want you to make the pilgrimage and come here. I really do. I really, really do. I want to place the anointing oils on your body and have you receive that. Have you receive that love through through that awareness. So um, stay tuned. Where can people find your book? I think you can pre-order it already. Can you? Is it up for pre-order the book? Available on all online booksellers. It should be in lots of little bookstores. You can order it from wherever makes you happy. I did read the audiobook, which will be available on August 15th. Did? Um, I can't wait. I love to. I do 40 different voices. It's very silly, but just know that I did it with absolute love. Oh, <laughs> you're great. So did you say you did do all the different voices? You did all the different characters? That's a, that's a major feat. That's a lot to do. It took 70 hours. It took a whole month to do with a great team of people who were very patient and very professional. But um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to bow down to you doing that. That is not easy to do. That is a lot of work. No, it's well, and I can't wait. I love to listen to audiobooks. So I'm going to be listening to it as well as reading it again and again because seriously, y'all, this is a great, great yarn. It's a great story. I'm glad you wrote it as fiction. I am so glad you did it as fiction because this is the thing. I also believe this oral tradition of the storytelling is so importantly part of the ministry of what they were up to. So the fact that you put it into a story that has juicy, wild, interesting characters. I love it. Love it. Love it. I'm going to be buying it for everybody. So my loves, <laughs> stay tuned for more from the Red Podcast. And I, I'm so, so honored to get to hear, be here with you all. And I am really, really delighted, Sophie, to get to meet you. I've been wanting to meet you for a while. So mwah, thank you for your time and your energy and being here. So much love. Thank you. And for everyone else, we will see you soon. Bye, my loves. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Podcast. It's been an honor to have you here with us. As Red women, we are here leading from the edges of our own evolution, birthing new worlds into being through our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and our beautiful presence. 
If you would like to be in contact with me, I love hearing from you. You can find me on Instagram at elaine.kalila or over on my website, elainekalila.com. And lastly, I'd like to invite you, if you loved this episode, to go ahead and share this with someone that you think might enjoy it too. It's through us sharing our hearts with one another and inspiring one another that we reveal our red, that evolutionary edge that is just waiting to be fully expressed in all aspects of our world. Until next time, many, many blessings.